0: Today on CityCast Madison. Here in Wisconsin, we have the first openly gay U.S. senator serving on our behalf, Senator Tammy Baldwin. And there is a disturbing trend of anti-LGBTQ bills being introduced across the U.S., including in our state we sat down with Senator Baldwin to hear her take on the recent wave of bills, her work around ending barriers to care, and why she's focusing on mental health. It's Wednesday, October 4th. I'm Bianca Martin, and here's what Madison's talking about. Senator Baldwin, hello. Hello. It's great to join you. It's wonderful to see you. So, anti-LGBTQ legislation and policies have been sweeping the nation, including here in Wisconsin. We recently saw state lawmakers block Governor Evers' attempt to ban conversion therapy. You know, the practice where therapists try to change a person's sexual orientation. Private schools that receive public funds can legally discriminate against LGBTQ plus students. Why do you think this is happening now? You
1: know, it's so disheartening to see. And uh, in terms of why I think it's happening now, I'm sad to even share this concept, but I think there's a lot of politicians who feel like they will benefit from attacking this very vulnerable group of folks. They look at the polls on the issue and say, oh, wow, this is a wedge that I can gain from. I think it's really, really tragic, whether it's something that they do fundraising after they propose some policy and or just something that they use electorally. It's really, again, very disheartening.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know, something that you're working on and for a community that's so vulnerable in the first place, you know, a marginalized group. Um, so this June, you reintroduced legislation called the LGBTQI Data Inclusion Act. The bill requires the federal government to collect data on sexual orientation and gender identity when they survey the public. Can you tell us about what this data will be used for? Yeah, well, let me just first uh, explain
1: uh, that if you're not counted, you are kind of invisible. And if we want to understand let's say, what sort of disparities exist, we have to ask questions to be able to gather the data to propose solutions. And so it's particularly helpful for policymakers, I think, about healthcare disparities based on race or gender, but it's also important to know based on sexual orientation or gender identity. When we see studies about uh, youth depression and youth suicidality, we can and 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 we know that right now young girls are experiencing depression and sense of isolation at much higher numbers than younger boys we only know that because we ask the question of gender in order to understand and and then propose solutions people have to be counted these questions are voluntary and also uh safeguards are very serious about um Uh, privacy of this information. If you're taking a survey, you have to trust that your information is going to be kept uh, private. Again, you're invisible if you're not counted.
0: And that's one of the things I wanted to ask about was if you are concerned about, some folks might worry about offering up this information, but it sounds like that's a part of this push.
1: It's voluntary to provide the information. But again, we will not. Uh, we will not have the appropriate policies if we don't have the information to begin with. I remember back when I served in the House of Representatives, and we'd have hearings on healthcare disparities, and and we would be able to get a lot of information on racial disparities, or income disparities, or gender disparity. Um, and I would often ask the question: So, what can you tell me about disparities? with regard to the LGBTQ community. And I would get a blank stare back. We don't know. We don't collect the data. And that inspired, uh, uh, some years ago, my efforts to say, we've got to have the data if we're going to respond to challenges and and disparities.
0: Yeah, and to see the full playing field and what's going on. And so this is a reintroduction. What do we know about the outlook? you know, for passage.
1: Yeah. I, you know, one thing that I would suspect is if it moves, it will probably move as part of a bigger bill on health care or something else that's, uh, you know, relevant to this. It's unlikely to get adopted as a singular bill. I think, uh, again, it would be really appropriate, for example, in a larger uh, bill focusing on health care disparities by way of example.
0: Absolutely. Well, yeah, and you talked about youth mental health as one of the things that should be considered when thinking about LGBTQ plus data. September was Suicide Prevention Month, and we know that the rates for suicide for queer communities and particularly queer youth are very high. You led efforts to create the new 988 Suicide Crisis Hotline, and you've been traveling around the state talking about this. Why has mental health been a priority for you this year?
1: Well, it's been a long priority for me, but let me say specifically, we have a lot of information as we begin to emerge from the pandemic that especially in 2020 and 2021, when people were really isolating, not going in person to school, et cetera, that among our youth, there was a a real spike in, in depression, in feelings of isolation and just an alarming number of young people considering suicide or tried to take their lives. And we have to prioritize this. This is a crisis. 988 was legislation that was passed before the pandemic. We saw a need a long time ago for a better way to get help uh, when somebody's in crisis, in a mental health crisis or considering suicide. Now, we've long had a national suicide hotline, but it used to be a 10 digit number that nobody knew, right? <laughs> and how would you find it? To have a memorable yeah. 988 three digit number right. and to promote it so people know that it exists, provides people with a way to reach out um, either by text or by voice that you can, you can reach it either way and seek help. and I since it was launched, over 5 million calls in the first year. Wow. And so I, when I introduced the bill along with my uh, former colleague, Cory Gardner from from Colorado, um, we knew it would save lives. But the impact is much larger than I could have imagined. And I'm so glad that while it passed some years ago that it was implemented and became live during this time of crisis so that we can provide a support to those who call. It's really important with that 988 number that it be fully staffed, that nobody's put on hold when they're calling in the middle of a crisis, right? And so that the calls get um, picked up quickly, the checks get responded to quickly. But the other thing we've been doing since then is trying to make sure that the agencies all throughout the country that provide mental health care, support counseling, peer counseling, et cetera, that they're funded also because you want a warm handoff from the person who's dealing with the call at the acute moment to uh, follow-up services and culturally competent and congruent uh, follow-up services whenever possible. That's also a part of this effort.
0: Speaking about the crisis and the pandemic, another big issue the federal program that subsidized childcare providers over the pandemic is ending. Many families are super worried about how to pay for childcare, which can cost now more than college tuition. A topic for another time for us. A new bill <laughs> has been introduced to re up funding. You're a co signer. Why do you think childcare has become partisan? Why isn't this a slam dunk? I know it shouldn't be. And frankly, It should be something
1: that is embraced by both parties, but also all levels of government and the private sector really should be stepping up uh, more than they are because they're desperate for workers. But if the barrier between staying home with your children and going back to work is the availability of childcare, we ought to be all working together to address that barrier. You know, in the state of Wisconsin, there are many areas of the state that are considered childcare deserts. A childcare desert is when there are three or more children for every one childcare slot, and that uh, the, the childcare can be many miles away. But our entire state is um, facing a childcare crisis because even if it's not officially considered a desert, we still probably have two children for every one childcare slot that's available. And that has massive repercussions on our workforce, on our economy, uh, and on making sure that children have a healthy and good start. Uh, Because in some cases, people are needing to leave their children in less than desirable circumstances uh, uh, in order to work. And we should be joining together to confront this. But this crisis is in part because we had a lot of support. During the height of the pandemic, um, when businesses had to shut down. And uh, we wanted to make sure that when the pandemic, you know, when it was safe to reopen, that they could reopen, that they hadn't gone out of business, also did a lot to help uh, uh, child care centers increase the pay of child care workers that are usually uh, quite low salaries. And and as we reopen and as these funds uh, begin to dry up, a lot of folks who um, who are trained in early childhood education and childcare have credentials. Um, that's what they feel passionately about, but they're taking a job at uh, the convenience store uh, because it pays twice as much as what they would get paid if they returned to, to work in childcare so there's a crisis on all sides of this. This is an area where it seems that the free market just doesn't work because if you paid uh, those workers what they deserve, parents wouldn't be able to afford the tuition. And so there is a role for government and the private sector to step up in partnership. So the childcare bill that I have uh, just introduced with uh, colleagues would try to help bridge the gap between the fall off of the pandemic era funding and when we can really redesign how we uh, do childcare in America.
0: Yeah, the need is clear. And Wisconsin's getting loads of attention from the current Biden administration, as well as from the many other contenders vying for 2024. What's top of mind for you, Senator Baldwin, especially as someone who's running again?
1: Well, it is very clear Wisconsin is getting a lot of attention. Uh, you know, the, um, the Republican Party is hosting their national convention in Milwaukee, Wisconsin next year. Um, and that's not by accident. We are sort of the ultimate battleground state with regard to some of the rights and freedoms that uh, uh, Wisconsinites um, are fighting to restore, whether that's uh, in our state in a post-Dobbs world, Ie uh, after Roe versus Wade was overturned by the US Supreme Court Wisconsinites saw the laws in the state revert to an 1849 statute which was understood to be a criminal abortion ban we are seeing a lot of a lot of developments in Wisconsin around that and certainly this past spring when we had a Supreme Court race on the ballot we saw a tons of involvement in uh, that race. Janet Protosewitz won with nearly an 11-point margin, which to me screamed out that Wisconsinites want their rights and freedoms back, whether that's with regard to reproductive care or voting rights or collective bargaining rights. I saw it as a real clear sign that Wisconsinites were engaged and demanding their rights and freedoms back. So that's going to be another salient issue that we see play out or set of issues that we see play out over the the years to come.
0: Absolutely. That is certainly top of mind for so many folks here in Wisconsin and in Madison. Before we let you go, I want to ask a fun question. Do you have anything you're excited for coming up this fall? Get into any pastimes that you love, like woodworking or birding? I hope to
1: get to see some leaves turning color in bright and vibrant form. I am gonna be uh, heading up for a Packers game later in the fall, so I'm very excited about that too.
0: I saw some legislation about that that you're working on, Go Pack Go. The Go Pack Go (laughs) Act, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Senator Baldwin, we so appreciate your time. Thank you. So great to see you and to be on your show. That's U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin. If you or anyone you know needs care around a mental health crisis or needs to talk to someone, it's very okay to share your feelings. And there are confidential resources. If you're struggling, call the Crisis Lifeline number at 988. You can also text or message the 988 Lifeline anytime if that's easier. Full disclosure. I worked for Senator Baldwin as a staff assistant in her Madison and DC office for two years back in 2014. It was a pleasure serving Wisconsin. And here's what else Madison's talking about. It's National Voter Education Week. Madison City Clerk wants you to know so you can be prepared come election day. As a reminder, you can confirm your voter registration at the Wisconsin Elections Commission website. We'll toss a link in our show notes. And speaking of citizen engagement, the city of Madison is reassuring residents who spoke out after dozens of trees were marked with yellow paint along Mineral Point Road. The city is widening the sidewalk and planned to take down trees to make room. Now they're saying they will not be cutting down all the marked trees and hey. We recently talked with the city's head arborist about city trees and how they manage them. It was a lovely conversation. If you wanna give that a listen, go check out our podcast feed. You might learn a thing or two, I certainly did. That's all for today here on CityCast Madison. I'm Bianca Martin. If you enjoyed the show, why not share this episode with your most civically engaged friend. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more stories from around the city.